Turn, uh, open your Bibles to Second Samuel, if you would. Second Samuel. And uh, let me, uh, while you're turning there, let me just very quickly review where we were, what we covered last week as we jumped back into uh, the Bible study. Everybody have a set of notes, by the way. Is anybody in need of, okay, everybody's good. Let me, um, it's going to be a very quick review, but we talked about two main transitions or four main transitions last week. Um, First one, we talked about um, Eli, and Eli, of course, was the priest uh, as the book of 1 Samuel opens. Um, He was priest. He was also judge. His story covers really the first four chapters of uh, 1 Samuel. And um, the, the story of Eli then gives way to the story of Samuel. And so that really is the first main transition. Samuel, of course, um, was the uh, special, unique gift of God to his parents, Hannah and Elkanah. And uh, Samuel was really mentored by Eli, you will remember, um, grew up in the tabernacle and was taught how to worship God and to serve God. And and so um, he becomes the judge Eli was priest and judge, and um, Samuel really is judge, prophet, and even fulfills a priestly role as well. And um, so we, we see his story in chapters 5 through 8. Now, you remember that Eli had a problem, and that was his sons. He, was a, he evidently didn't parent all that well, couldn't say no to his boys, they caused him a lot of trouble. Um, Samuel, when Samuel leads, Samuel was a great godly man, but Samuel also failed to discipline his sons. And so when it came time, when he was old and would have normally transferred his leadership role to his sons, the people of Israel said, we don't want anything to do with your sons. They're wicked and we want a king instead of a judge. And so Samuel gives way then to the first king of Israel, who is King Saul. And his story is also picked up then in uh, 1 Samuel chapters 9 through 15. Um, it's predominantly Saul. And, and, and of course, Saul was um, right off the bat, Saul began to fail as a leader. He was disobedient. Um, he was impatient, um, made some really poor choices. And so his kingship began to deteriorate right off the bat. Very early on in the leadership of or under the leadership of King Saul, God went ahead and anointed or had Samuel anoint the next king. Who was that? David. All right. So that leads us to the fourth person, and that is, that is David. Now, all of 1 Samuel... Uh, in all of 1 Samuel, David is anointed as king, but is not yet king. Um, he, he doesn't rise to the throne. He patiently waits on the timing of God. And uh, one of the most difficult things probably for all of us is to know that God's called us to do something, know that this opportunity is there, and yet know that we have to wait. It's not his timing yet. And so David had to wait until... Uh, God said, this is the time. David had several opportunities along the way to take Saul out. Saul hated him. He tried to kill David. David had opportunities to retaliate or to get vengeance and to kill Saul. But every time David said, no, I'm not going to touch God's anointed. I'm going to let God work this plan out. And so David refused to um, to take the throne by way of force. He waited on God to work that out. I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 31, if you would. And this is where the story, we really didn't even read this last week. And um, I think I'll go ahead and read it. 1 Samuel 31. And um, this is at the very end of, this would be point number four. David is national hero and probably letter H on your notes. Uh, But let me read 1 Samuel 31, or at least part of it. This is where Saul's story will end, and we're going to pick up David, and that's where we'll be tonight. 
Uh, the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Um, then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan. Remember, who was, who was Jonathan's really close friend? David, okay, so Jonathan is killed as well as Aminadab and Malchashua. These were Saul's sons. The battle was fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, t- Saul took a sword and fell on his own sword. So Saul said, I don't want to die at the hand of the Philistines. I don't want them to brag about taking out the king of Israel. So he asked his armor bearer to kill him, and, and his armor bearer said, I won't do it. So he goes ahead and kills himself. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all of his men died together that same day. I don't think I'll read the rest of um, that chapter, but this is, this is the end of Saul's life. Now we're going to pick up David as the king, and uh, we're primarily going to look at 2 Samuel tonight, a little bit at 1 Chronicles, but I'll, I'll tell you when we need to turn there. Let me make, now that we're on, um, I guess this would be, we're back to Roman numeral, looks like Roman numeral number one, where it says David's reign. Is that what your notes say? Am I right? Okay. Um, so let me just go through a few of these introductory remarks. First of all, First and Second Samuel, as I said last week, originally were one book. Um, they were not separated. We separated them later. Um, First Samuel covers about a hundred years. That would be Samuel's birth to Saul's death. It's about a hundred year period. Um, Second Samuel, which only covers the rule of David, uh, covers only about four decades, about 40 years. First Samuel covers 1105 BC to around 1010 BC. Second Samuel um, is about 1010 um, to 970 BC. This would be um, the story of David's reign as the king over Israel. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 1, this is how David's reign begins. Now, I, I, I read chapter 31 of 1 Samuel for a reason. I want you to see now what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 1. came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and he prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? And so he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, please, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm. And I have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. Well, first of all, what do you recognize right off the bat? Okay, he was lying. He's telling a story that did not happen. He is obviously a man trying to take advantage. If if 1 Samuel, that account is the true account of what happened, which is Saul fell on his own sword because his armor bearer wouldn't do it, 
then this man is just, he's trying to make a power grab and he thinks that David will appreciate the fact that he is the one that finished Saul off. By the way, this is going to happen three or four times tonight. People are going to think they are helping David out only to find out that David did not want their help, all right? And so this is the first of those. So this man is, he's, he's like proud. Here's the bracelet, here's the crown. I killed Saul for you. And David took hold of his own clothes. He tore them, verse 11, and all the men that were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan's son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I'm a son of an alien, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now let me pause for a moment. David David had several chances himself to do it. And he, the, the guy who was anointed to be king, wouldn't touch Saul. And so he is appalled that this guy is claiming that he did. And David said, why in the world weren't you afraid to do that? And then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. David said to him, your blood is on your own head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. So um, he thought he was doing David a favor, but he lost his life. David said, it's not how we do things. We wait on God to fulfill his plan instead of taking it into our own hands. Uh, by the way, if, you're, if blood bothers you, you might want to exit now because there's going to be a lot of it tonight, all right? Um, this is some of these stories tonight. Well, we'll just let's, just, let's just go through it and tell the stories as they go. So now we go to 2 Samuel chapter 2. And... Um, this is fascinating to me, and, and I, I don't want to assume that anybody already knows this. this is, these are some of the stories that we read, but I don't know that we really grasp what happened. So, okay, so obviously it appears now, right, that Saul is gone. David's been anointed by Samuel as king, so the obvious thing would be that David takes over as king, right? That just that seems to make sense. But keep in mind that the, the anointing of David happened at... His father's house was kind of uh, quiet. And, um, you know, we live in a country where, at least so far, we still have peaceful transition of power. That wasn't always the case in the ancient world. So let's read what happens. Chapter 2, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. And so David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam, uh, uh, I can't pronounce that tonight, did great this morning, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men um, who were with him and every man with his household. So they dwelled in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came and there they anointed David, king of the house of Judah, and they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You're blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and you have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened, be valiant, for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me to be king over Israel. All right. Now, I want you to look on the map, and you'll notice the purple down at the bottom uh, of the map is Judah. All right. Um, Now, actually, there are two tribes that make up this purple. One of them is the tribe of Judah. These are all sons of Jacob. All right. Jacob had 12 sons. Each one has a, basically each one has a tribe, except Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they each got a half tribe, but we won't get into that confusion tonight. But, but Judah, which is this purple area, really makes up two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, all right? You will also notice, I don't, you probably can't read it because it's a little fuzzy, um, but, but nevertheless, Hebron is down in that area. So 
So Saul dies and David says to God, shall I go up to any of the cities? And God says, yes, I want you to go to Hebron. So he goes to Hebron and the people of Judah gather there and they anoint him to be their king. All right. So David becomes the king of Judah, not yet the king of Israel. It's not so simple. All right. I want you to look with me now, 2 Samuel chapter 2, and look at verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mehanaim, and he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all of Israel. All right? So... Abner, who has a lot of power, we're going to find out he had a ton of power, was like the the chief of staff for King Saul. He didn't want it. I mean, he's afraid if if David takes over, David might get rid of him and everybody else. He might be out of a job. He might lose his life. And so he um, leverages his position and he says to the son of Saul, we're going to make you king. And he takes Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth becomes king over the rest of Israel, except about half of that purple area that you see on your map. So David is just the king of Judah, and Ishbosheth is anointed king over the rest of Israel. All right? Verse 10 Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned for two years. Look at this. Only the house of Judah followed David. At that time, David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, Abner, the son of Ner and the servant of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Zeruiah, And the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down one on one side of the pool and one on the other. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and they went over by number 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And they each grasped their opponent by the head and thrust a sword into his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, the place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. And there was a very fierce battle that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Okay, so this is not a peaceful transition of power. You, you're getting that, right? So Abner makes Ishbosheth the king of Israel, all right? So when we talk about, when we get to Solomon, and then Solomon's going to die later, for the, we talk about that when, we, when you hear me or whoever preach about the divided kingdom, we usually think about the divided kingdom after Solomon because there's Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and there's the north and the south. But the kingdom was actually divided before, before Solomon. It was divided in David's day. Ishbosheth has Israel and really all of Israel except just one tribe that David has. Now, I want to I put these names up here. So you've got David and um, Ishbosheth. Can't talk while I spell this one, all right? And then. Joab is the general of David's army, and Abner is the general of Ishbosheth's army. All right? 2 Samuel chapter 3. Um, so they had a first battle, and um, I just read that to you, and it looks like David is, is already picking up ground. Chapter 3, verse 1 there was a long war. Between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So David is picking up steam. His kingdom is starting to expand a little bit. His army is getting stronger, his support is getting greater. So now we go to verse six. This is um this is as the world turns on steroids, okay? So just, just follow with me. Verse 6, so it was so that there was war between the house of Saul and David, and Abner was strengthening his hold 
on the house of Saul. Let me tell you something about Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth was not a strong leader, was not a great king. He only just his, his dad was king, so he became king. But Abner is the power guy in this. That's why it says Abner is getting a strengthening his grip on Saul's army because Abner, listen. Abner is worried about Abner. He is taking care of himself. All right. He sees the poles are going down for Ishbosheth, and so he's got to carve out a spot. So Abner is strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Now, Saul had a concubine whose name was Ritzpah, the daughter of Ahiah. And so Ishbosheth said to Abner, why did you go into my father's concubine? So Ishbosheth now confronts his general, Abner, and he ticks him off. Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth. And he said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and I've not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. In other words, Abner is saying, Listen, buddy, if it wasn't for me, You'd have been over there losing your head. You'd have lost the kingdom. I didn't hand you off. And now you're turning around and throwing this charge at me. May God do so to Abner and more also. If I don't do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. In other words, now Abner tells Ishbosheth, I'm, I'm switching teams. God anointed David and may God curse me if I don't help David get what God anointed him to get. He says that to his boss Ishbosheth. Um, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, verse 10, and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So Ishbosheth now knows he's in trouble because Abner, who is the real power guy in that kingdom in the first place, has just said that he is going to switch sides. Now, let's get to verse 17 of the same chapter. Um, story gets really interesting. So then Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel saying in time, oh, by the way, I need to tell you something. Abner in a previous battle had killed the, the brother of Joab, whose name was Ashiel. So Joab didn't like Abner too well. All right. You needed to know that. So Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel saying in time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, let's do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin, so the tribe of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I'm going to rise and go, and I'm going to gather all of Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So Abner shows up, they have a dinner. He says to David, listen, we're going to switch over. I've talked to everybody and we're all going to follow you. And so Abner leaves. All right. Notice we don't read anything about Joab. Is Joab Joab was out doing business. So verse 22, at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid. They had been out doing war and um, they brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. So when Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab saying, Abner, the son of Ner came to the king and he sent him away and he's gone in peace. And Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he's already gone? Surely, King David, you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. In other words, Joab says, David, you're out of your mind. He's just playing a game with you. He's trying to manipulate you. He's trying to spy on you to find out when you come in and when you go out because he wants to kill you. He wants to take over your kingdom. And so Joab is beside himself with David's friendliness to Abner. Everybody following all the names so far, right? Ishbosheth, David, Abner, and Joab, right? That's all we got. So when Joab, verse 26, had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. So Joab said, go get him. They went after Abner. 
who brought him back from the well of Sarah, but David didn't know about it. And when Abner had returned to Hebron, so he came back, Joab took him aside in the gate and said, let's have a private meeting. Took him aside privately. And there, more blood, he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashiel, his brother. He's avenging that. Now, second time here, somebody thinks they're helping David out because he thinks he's spying against David. And, um, and so he assassinates Abner. Verse 28, when David heard of it, he said, My kingdom and I, we are guiltless before the Lord of the blood of Abner. But let it rest on the head of Joab and all of his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper. Actually speaks a curse on his family. Let somebody in your house always have a disease, a discharge, or be a leper. Um, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother, Ashiel, at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. They buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice, and he wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. Now, it's, it's, it's a little bit remarkable and uh, maybe even a little bit humorous, <laughs> thousands of years removed. But um, the first guy thinks he's doing David a favor by taking Saul out, and David has him killed. And the second guy thinks he's doing David a favor by taking Abner out, and David becomes a pallbearer at that guy's funeral. I mean, he's following the coffin, and he's mourning over the death of this guy that Joab took out, thinking he was doing it for him. Um, it's going to happen one more time, by the way. Somebody, after the third time this morning, commented, so they said, let me just get this straight. So when it comes to David, it's best to ask first. And so I would say that's pretty good wisdom. They all thought they knew what David wanted and they were all wrong. All right. So now Ishbosheth is dead. Uh, or no, Ishbosheth is not dead yet. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. Abner is dead. And now we go to chapter 4 and verse 1. When Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth, heard that Abner had died, he lost heart and all of Israel was troubled. So Ishbosheth knew he wasn't the one holding the kingdom together. He knew it was Abner. And so when Abner's gone, Ishbosheth knows the writing is on the wall and his time, his days are, are numbered. And um, so Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. And uh, the name of one was Bana, and the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Ramon and Barathite of the children of Benjamin. Um, Verse 4, Jonathan, Saul's son, also had a son who was lame in his feet. And that story is told, you probably know that story, Mephibosheth, um, the, the one that was lame. And David was so kind to him later and said, you can always eat at my table. But the sons of Ramon, verse 5, uh, Rechab and Banah set out and they came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth who is lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banah, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. And they struck him and they killed him and they beheaded him. And they took his head and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. And you can just see these two guys thinking that they are going to get like the, you know, the purple heart or something like that. Or they're going to get the president's honor because they have taken out the king. Verse 8, 9, David answered Rechab and Banah. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag. 
the one who thought I would give him reward for his news. How much more when these wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed, therefore shall I now not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth. So David commanded his young men and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Everybody understand why it's better to ask David first, right? Okay, so these guys are taken out thinking that they had done a favor. However, Ishbosheth is dead now. Chapter 5, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and they spoke saying, um, indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Times past when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and be ruler all of, over all of Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord. And now they anoint David king over Israel. He was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 40 years. So now David, the death of Ishbosheth brings the um, coronation of David now as the king over all of Israel, Judah. And so everything on your map, uh, both green and purple, is now what David becomes the king over. So that now we start David's full reign, okay? Um, now, I, we've told a lot of stories here at the beginning. I'm going to move a little quicker now. Um, any, any questions or comments before I go any further? Everybody? Yeah, Ron? Um, I think about two and a half, two and a half years between... Ishbosheth and what's that? It was, it was fast forward. Yes, yeah, it was just a couple of chapters, but uh, but two years or so. Yes, yes. Very very barbaric. Yes. Cor- correct, yes. And I think that's a really good point to make, Carol, that this is one of the reasons why I always say, and, and you're probably getting tired of me saying it, but don't sanitize the Old Testament and make all of these people, you know, saintly and try to turn those kind of things into something spiritual. This was, this is what happens when people spend hundreds of 400 years, everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. I mean, this is the kind of people you develop. And so, yeah, they were very barbaric. And um, um, the, the Old Testament is full of that. And um, this was not, this is not, God did not say go and cut heads off. So, yeah. To kill everybody. Yes. No, and I think maybe one of the things about David, people asked this morning, and I think it's a good point, um, David, David, and we're going to talk about some of his mistakes. He made lots of them. They were horrible. But David had a patience to wait on the plan of God. And David did not want to get vengeance on his own. He trusted God to get it. And so these three men, the, the Amalekite and um, Abner and then um, Ramah and Bana, I guess, are the two brothers or the two sons of Saul, they, um, they were trying to get vengeance for David. And David is saying, no, if God anointed me, God will get me there. And so David trusted God to get him there. And, and these men were trying to, to, and especially Abner, or Joab was just trying to get vengeance on his own for Ashiel dying. So, um, so but that's a, that's a very good point. Any, any other? Uh, yeah, Brandon. He was king over Judah before, yes, even before Saul. They, they had, no, they had given their allegiance to him already. Um, yes, that is correct. Those numbers are a little, a little funky, but that is true. He'd actually, um, he actually ruled over Judah for, I guess, about five years before or so. Yeah. Anybody else? 
Okay, so um, I'm not going to read you a, a ton more. We will pick up some other things a little bit later. But David, first of all, had some pretty, once he's king over the whole thing, he has some pretty significant political success. Uh, we won't turn there, but you may want to jot this down. In First Chronicles 11, 1 through 9, it describes the expansion of David's territory that was pretty impressive um, as he expanded more and more. And uh, Israel actually grew very strong under David's uh, leadership. I want you to look at chapter 5 of 2 Samuel and look at verse 11, um, because this is significant. David is anointed king in Hebron. That's where, that's where he's anointed king. But now something happens, um, and, and that is that they move the capital city to Jerusalem. That's where um, now it's going to be a little more centrally located. Verse 11, then Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David in cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he'd exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron, and also more sons and daughters were born to him. And then there's a short little listing of those. So now the capital city becomes um, Jerusalem. Now, David also had um, regular success over the Philistines. Let me ask you again, who's the most famous Philistine that we all know? Goliath. All right, David had won a great battle against Goliath. Something that, I, if we were going to not be committed to this big picture view and just really study First Samuel. First Samuel has so many pieces to it. We could spend probably an entire six months just lessons on First Samuel. So there's lots of things we're leaving out. One of the things is that David, for a short stint, when Saul was seeking his life, he actually crossed into the Philistine territory and fought with them and uh, won some little skirmishes for, just because he was trying to hide out from Saul. There's also a time where David acted like he was a crazy man so that he wouldn't lose his life. So some really interesting stories about David when he was running for his life. But, but there had always been this, this um, kind of on-again, off-again relationship with the Philistines. But when David was king of Judah, they weren't too worried about him. But when he became king over all of Israel... Now he's kind of getting a little too close for comfort. Philistines are there. You, you can see on the west side uh, of that map along the sea. They are, uh, it, it probably says Philistia. They are sea people. The Philistines were sea people. So when he, when he gets in charge of all of Israel, he now is getting pretty close to their territory. So they begin to push back on him. And in 2 Samuel 5... Um, Verses 17 through 25, he wins a very uh, impressive battle uh, against the Philistines. Now, there's also, I don't want to just talk about military and and, uh, political success. There was also some great spiritual success under the leadership of David. Um, One of those things was um, that the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem. Now, again, we're not going through all the stories. The Ark of the Covenant... Um, has an interesting story too. Remember back here under Eli, remember when Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in the battle with the Philistines, by the way. Um, what else happened? The Ark of the Covenant was stolen and the Philistines took the Ark. That's when Eli fell backwards. He broke his neck. The Bible says he was a very fat man. And so all of that weight um, fell and, and he broke his neck. Um, but the Ark of the Covenant belonged, was held onto by the Philistines. But the Ark of the Covenant, everywhere it went, it wreaked havoc. They, they put it, this is again one of the stories we're not covering, but um, they put it in the Temple of Dagon. It was a false god. 
They had a big statue of Dagon. They put the ark there and they came into the temple the next morning and the, the statue had fallen over and broken. And so they set it back up and they came back the next morning and it had fallen again. And so they said, get that ark out of here. We don't want it. So the next place they transported it, everybody in town got tumors all over them. And of course they wanted the ark out of there. So it was kind of like hot potato with the ark of the covenant. Nobody wanted it because uh, it, it was God's presence and it was powerful. So finally Israel gets it back. But now they want to transport it. David wants to bring it to Jerusalem. And you probably know the story. So it's an exciting day. And David does not pray about it. He just knows he wants to get it there. And David, uncharacteristic of David in his early years, gets ahead of himself. And he says, just put the ark on the oxen cart. And instead of putting it on the poles and carrying it on the shoulders, put it on the oxen cart and have the oxen carry it. It won't be as heavy. And so they're all following along. And there's this guy named Uzzah who is standing there and the oxen stumbles and the cart starts to go and he steadies the cart and boom, he is immediately killed. How many are glad we're under grace? Aren't you glad we're, oh my goodness. Guy has touched the ark and pow, he's gone. But Again, listen, the the lesson that we learn is we should be thankful we are under grace because the presence of God is not something to play with. It's not something to to treat in a trite manner. And by the way, just because we're under grace now does not mean that God will not discipline or judge us ultimately for the way we handle and treat the presence of God. Grace means we have an extension. Grace means that, that God is covering those things. It doesn't, ma- it doesn't mean he doesn't care what we do. And, and uh, you've heard me, I don't need to say it over and over, but I am concerned about the way the modern church treats, talks about the presence of God. The presence of God is powerful enough to kill someone who just touches the ark. It's not something that we should joke about and be tried about and, and play with and... and you know, try to manipulate like so often is done today. So, so David waits a while and then they decide they're going to bring the ark in and they're going to do it right. Priests bear it on the poles, on their shoulders, and everybody marches in correct cadence and stays the right distance behind the ark and they bring the ark into the city of Jerusalem. And that, of course, is when Second Samuel 6, when David gets so thrilled and so exhilarated that he dances in the street in Jerusalem and takes off his kingly robes and just worships the Lord. And Michael, his wife, um, looks out the window, and she's a proud woman, proud to be the wife of the king, and going to be a little embarrassed now when she has to go downtown later, and everybody talks about what a fool David made of him. Your husband really made a fool of himself the other day. And so she scolds David when he comes back home and says, you made a fool of yourself today, acting so undignified. And David said, I'll even allow myself to become more undignified if it means a chance to worship the Lord. And uh, you you know what the Bible says about Michael? She became barren, bore no children, because of her critical attitude uh, toward David. I remember I told this story this morning, and I, I know I've told it a time or two. Some of you may have heard it, but when I was in Bible college, my very first year, uh, southeastern in Lakeland, Florida, um, I was just 18, and um, I've always been conservative in my in, in the way that I demonstrate my worship. That's you know I, that's just how I've always been. Even though I was raised in a Pentecostal church, I've always been a, a little more conservative. And um, so I got there, and, and there were guys in my dorm that behaved all sorts of ways in the dorm, acted all sorts of ways, talked about all kinds of things, did things after curfew they shouldn't have done. But then in chapel service, I mean, they were just the most spiritual ones there. And they were you know, prophesying and speaking in tongues and, you know, doing all sorts of interpreting. And, and uh, so I, it bothered me. And, uh, and, and not only did it bother me, there was some pride in me that thought, well, I would never do anything like that. So I thought I would go and, and share my burden with my New Testament professor. His name was Bashford Bishop, used to write Sunday school curriculum for the Assemblies of God. And um, I, I went to Brother Bishop, and I thought he would be um, impressed with my spiritual um, 
development and maturity at 18 and pat me on the back and nominate me for general superintendent or something like that. Um, instead, he immediately picked up on the pride that I had. I told him my whole story and how it bothered me. And he took me to this story. And he said, Kevin, there are a whole lot of people that are spiritually barren today because instead of engaging God's presence and worshiping, they stand back and they criticize others who may worship in ways that they wouldn't themselves or they criticize others for the way that they are too demonstrative. And um, I I walked out with my uh, head tucked between my legs and realized that I had been rebuked. I'm thankful for that because I never forgot it. We need to be very careful that not only in how we handle the presence of God, but how we judge others. We don't know what others have gone through. We don't know how deeply people may have been caught up in sin and, and how thankful they may be. Again, what did, the, what did the disciples do? They criticized the woman who poured out that expensive oil on Jesus. And, and Jesus rebuked them and said, let her go. She's a person who's been forgiven much, loves much. And I think sometimes, um, sometimes I think those of us who are more conservative use our conservative nature as an excuse because we forget really how much we ought to be thankful for the grace of God as well. Because whether we did the big sins or not, um, were it not for the grace of God, none of us would be right with him. So it's a great lesson I learned, and it came from that text. So um, they, they got the ark to Jerusalem. Chapter 7, um, let, me, um, let, let me read this to you. It came to pass uh, when the king was dwelling in his house that the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies. And the king said to Nathan, who was the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Still in a tabernacle. David says, look at this great house I have. And the ark of the covenant is in a mobile tent. And Nathan said to the king, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So Nathan said, if you want to build him a house, build him a house. But that night, God spoke to Nathan and said, go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but I have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, God's saying, I've been in a tabernacle a long time, and I've never asked for a house yet. Have I ever asked for one yet? Now, therefore, look at verse 8. Thus saith the Lord to my servant David, you shall say to my servant David, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to being ruler over my people. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I've made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies Also, the Lord tells you, this is God's word to David. I really like this. The Lord tells you, he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. My mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a really cool thing that happens here. Please get this. Um, David wanted to make a house for God. And God said, David, I want to make a house for you. That is a really powerful thing. I want to make a house for you. I want to establish your family. And so God says to David, um, David, um, you're not going to build a temple for me. Your son will. 
But, and Solomon is the one. David's son is the one that ends up building the temple. But David, here's what I'm going to do for you. I, I'm going to, I'm going to build a house, a, a household for you. And one of your seed is always going to sit on the throne. And, and he even says this, and, and there's so much here packed into these verses. He even says to David, um, David, when your son Solomon gets out of the way, commits iniquity, I'm going to discipline him, but I'm not going to take my mercy from him. And um, there are probably 15 times, and it spans um, a period of about 400 years after David, where there are people that are relatives of David, descendants of David, sitting on the throne, ruling in Judah, who are wicked. And God says to them, I should... I should rip the kingdom out of your hand. But because of the faithfulness of my servant David, I will not. And um, that message, I I heard um, Pastor Josh, I've told this story maybe once or twice as well. I said this morning, when you get been here 20 years, I forget what stories I've told. And, and if you, um, if I'm telling them too many times, please tell me. All right. Just say, pull me aside and say, Pastor Kevin, you're repeating yourself a lot. But anyway, I, I, this was during the time when, when Kayla had really walked away from God and Pastor Josh gave me a sermon. Uh, it was, uh, Jensen Franklin that preached this text, uh, or not that text, but the he preached the different texts where David said, where God said to David's descendants, I should, I should rip the kingdom from you, but because of the faithfulness of my servant David, um, I'm going to discipline you, but not destroy you. And, and he talked about in that sermon um, the power of parents and grandparents building up, um, building up the account for their children and their grandchildren. And um, that, that, so ministered to me. Um, when I teach poetic books at the School of Ministry, I always use the verse in Proverbs. I talk about Proverbs as a book of principles, not promises. I would love to say that it's a promise that train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. But it's not an absolute promise because people have a free will. But what it is is a principle, a principle that says if you raise your kids knowing about Jesus and you pour into them the word of God and you pray over them, you speak blessing over them and you model faithfulness before them. There is a whole lot better chance that even when they walk away, there's a whole lot better chance that ultimately they will come back because you have put into them what needs to be put into them. And I really do believe that there is something that God honors the prayers of parents and grandparents. And I would say even more than the parent, because the parent during that three years, this dad was, didn't even know how to pray sometimes. I can't tell you how many times my dad would come into my office on Sunday morning knowing that I had to preach and I was concerned about Kayla and would pray for me or say, your mother and I have been praying for you and praying for Kayla. And I just really believe that God honors that. And, and, and that's the principle we hear, see here. God saying to David, I'm going to honor your seed because of your faithfulness. And so, so it was that for all of these generations... Um, there is someone from David's family sitting on the throne. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take time to read it. Go to Second Chronicles. I may show you a couple of verses. Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-six. Second Chronicles thirty-six. Um, and um, I need to erase this though. So. And I give you a real quick little, we're going to be studying this in the next couple of weeks, but I'm going to give it to you real quickly. So we have Saul, David, Solomon will come, and then the kingdom will split. Jeroboam will be the king over Israel, and Rehoboam who is a descendant of David. He is Solomon's son. Rehoboam will be the king over Judah. This will be um, in the 900s. I want to say 930. Don't have the numbers before me right now. But there will be king after king after king after king after king that will be descendants of of David. 
Um, in about six of now, what happens is these people turn away from God. They they rebel. There's good kings. There's bad kings. When Josiah comes in, he gets them back on the right track. And then there's you know Manasseh is a bad, ungodly king. It's kind of a back and forth thing. We're going to talk about all the kings in the next few weeks. But we get to about um, six o five. 597 and 586 BC. These are three. Um, by this time, by this time, lots of the territories already been swept up by the Babylonians. Jerusalem's still intact, but that's about it. And they're just hanging on, hanging on for dear life. Um, look at Second Chronicles. Um, look at verse five. Um, Yeah, look at verse 4. The king of Egypt made Jehoahaz, his brother Eliakim, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Um, the Egyptians are also very strong. Actually, the Egyptians are strong back in the 630s. Babylon is just starting to get strong here. But, but Judah is so... Uh, they're not really very independent. Egypt is really reigning over them. and But they give them a king, and it is Jehoiakim, who is a descendant of David. All right? So he is the king, Jehoiakim. Jehoi, I think it's like this. Um, something like that. Jehoiakim. He becomes the king. Um, verse 5, this is Second Chronicles 36. He is 25 when he became king. And he reigns 11 years in Jerusalem, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, then king of Babylon, came up against him, and he bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar also carried off articles from the house of the Lord. And then the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim can be recorded later. Look at verse 9. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Jehoiakim is taken to Babylon, but they allow there to be a king, Jehoiachin. He is also a descendant of David, but he also fails. These monarchs at this point really are pretty much powerless. They are really just slaves to Babylon. Verse 10, at the turn of the year, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him that's Jehoiachin, and he took him to Babylon, and he made Zedekiah, uh, Jehoiakim's brother, king over Judah. So then it's Zedekiah, who is a brother to Jehoiakim, so still a descendant of David. He becomes king. Uh, he was 21 years old, and he reigned 11 years. Um, Zedekiah became king in 597, all right? He reigns 11 years to 586. And in 586 is when these three times, by the way, these three years, 605, 597, and 586 are the three sweep ends of Babylon. They come into Judah. They come into Jerusalem. They, they sweep in. They do some damage. They take some captives. Then they go home. But every time, every time Judah is weakened more and they become uh, more and more powerless. In 586, is when Nebuchadnezzar comes in the last time. That's when he destroys the temple. That's when he tears down the walls that Nehemiah will come back and rebuild later, about 70 years later, and when they carry away all the captives. By the way, 605 BC is when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were carried away, but it wasn't until 586 when all of Jerusalem is destroyed. I say all of that to say, all the way through this mess, even down to the last king, it is a descendant of David. But then Judah ceases to be. Israel ceases to be. But then we get to Matthew 1 1. Why don't you look in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1? And it will say this the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so what happens? God's promise to David is still fulfilled in the Messiah who is a descendant of David. That's why Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem, the house of David. God is, is keeping that promise that he made in 1 Samuel 7, that one of your descendants will always be 
on the throne of Israel. That's why he is the king of the Jews. That's why he's the king of Israel. That's why he's the Messiah. God's, even through all of this mess, God kept a descendant of David on the throne, but ultimately that promise is, is fulfilled in um, Jesus Christ. I, I'm going to zip through the rest of this in about seven minutes and we will be done. Um, David had some great military success. Um, Israel was a leading nation under both he and his son Solomon. The territory expanded. There were many victories for David. Um, some of the more significant ones you can find in First Chronicles 18 and First Chronicles 20. They conquered the Moabites. They conquered the Amalekites. Second Samuel chapter 10, they conquered the Ammonites. You may want to read that. It's an interesting story. But the first 10 chapters of Second Samuel are really David's success. But beginning in chapter 11, um, there is a great fall that begins. Um, God does not hide the sins of his leaders uh, from us. He doesn't sanitize it. Um, we are shown exactly what took place. And so in chapter 11, when the kings normally go forth to battle... David, who, and this is conjecture on our part, but I think it's safe to say, has won so many battles, he thought, I don't need to go this time. I'll just kind of be lazy. I'll delegate. I won't be in the midst. I'm proud of what I've done. He stayed home. And when he should have been out doing battle, he went out up one night on the top of of the the palace, and he looked over and he saw Bathsheba, uh, and he lusted after her. And because he was king, he could send servants there. And Bathsheba came to him and they slept together and she sends him word later that she's pregnant. That's a big problem because her husband hasn't been around. He's been out on the battlefield. So listen, nothing's new under the sun. Nothing is new under the sun. So you know what he does? He just tries, it's it's a cover-up. It's an attempted cover-up. So he says, hey, go get Uriah and and bring him here to me. And, And so Uriah comes in. He says, listen, you've been working so hard and you need some time off. I'm going to give you a leave of absence, and I want you to go, and I want you to just love on your wife, spend time with her, and, and, and uh, you know, go into her. And, you know, obviously what he's hoping is that, that they will be intimate, and then he can blame the pregnancy on Uriah, and whew, he's, you know, off the hook. That's what he's hoping will happen. Well, uh, Uriah sleeps outside that night. He, he said, I'm not going to do, I, I'm not going to satisfy myself when other, my friends are out on the battlefield. And so David even tries getting him drunk in the second night. He tries getting him drunk and getting him to, and he, he refuses. And so David then has to, now he's really in trouble. So David then sends Uriah to the front of the battle. You know that story, so that Uriah gets killed. And uh, so then David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And uh, you remember that day that Nathan the prophet comes to David? And what a, what a, what a moment. And he says to David, David, let me tell you the story. There was, there's this really wealthy king and he owned everything and he had wives and he had land and he had animals and this really poor little pauper farmer that had just one little ewe lamb. You know what that king did? That king swiped that little lamb up and said, I'm going to take that to be mine too. And David said, ah, how disgusting. I can't believe anybody would do that. And Nathan points his finger at David and says, David, you're the man. And, uh, David repents, of course. Psalm 51 is his uh, song of repentance or his psalm of repentance. And he does repent. And, and God, God forgives him, creates clean heart in him. But, but David still reaped the consequences. They, they lose a child. They lose that child of that um, illicit relationship. He has a son by the name of Amnon and a daughter that was beautiful by the name of Tamar. And Amnon uh, lusts after his half-sister Tamar, and he rapes her. Her life is ruined. Absalom, who is the full brother of Tamar, is so angry with Amnon. He wants David to do something, and David does nothing. And so Absalom rebels against his father, and he kills Amnon. So there's all this mess going on in David's family. And uh, so Absalom then and his father David are against one another. They're at odds. And Absalom, of course, steals the throne from his father. And David has to flee. And, um, and then finally, Absalom is killed in battle. And uh, David does it again, by the way. He's killed in battle. He has a, Absalom has this beautiful long hair. He gets caught on the tree. 
and, and they come along and they kill Absalom and they bring the report to David thinking he's going to be happy because even though it's his son, his son stole his throne and David doesn't rejoice at all. He mourns. And finally, they have to say to him, would you get up? Your people are out there and they're rejoicing that you've been restored as king and you're mourning. And so David washed his face and went out and greeted the people. But his family was a mess. Um, forgiveness came, but forgiveness still brought consequences. Uh, David's sin and his relationship with God. Let me make five statements. Number one, his sins were not sins of ignorance. He knew better. But instead, they were sins of his need to be impulsive in the moment. He wanted what he wanted, and he wanted it when he wanted it. Lust cost the life of Uriah and his child. Lies in First Samuel chapter 12 cost people's lives. Failure to discipline his own family created a mess. And later on, his pride when he wanted to have a census. And Joab said, don't do a census, don't count. We've got plenty of people. He knew that David just wanted to count because he had lots of people and wanted to be prideful about it. Joab said, don't do it, but he did it. And uh, because he did it, there was a pestilence that devastated the land because of David's pride. And uh, remember the story when David finally... The only way to stop the pestilence was to go and to offer a sacrifice. And he goes down to the, the, the homestead of Orana. And Orana sees the king coming. Hey, you can have whatever you want to make a sacrifice. I'll give you my threshing floor and the instruments and everything you need. And David said, no, no, I will not offer to the Lord a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Just a really powerful statement, a great reminder to us. Um, he spent his last 10 years... Uh, making a plan for Solomon to build the temple. And his last words are recorded in chapter 23. And then David dies, um, having reigned over Judah for 40 years. We will pick up with Solomon's reign, uh, which will begin right here uh, next week. Um, but we we now have come to really the end of Second Samuel and the end of David's reign. Any questions or comments? Anybody? All right. We will see you all Sunday morning. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you.